Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. If you are just tuning in, we encourage you to go back and listen from episode one. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal. Who kills the man in the suitcase? I'm naive. I'm thinking, well, if I didn't do anything, like, what's the harm in talking? Am I telling them I'm having an affair? Nobody's asking. You know, and I said, he was the type of person who pissed people off. His mouth could start a fair amount of trouble. What I don't get is why I am the suspect. And Bill's middle sister looked at me at that service and said, what happened? I have no husband. I have no children. You know, and I'm living home again. And then one day, you drop your children off at daycare and people jump out of the bushes at you. So I'm taking it to custody at this point. My bail is raised to $2 million. Human sawdust in the car. We've got this DNA now. You will be taking the stand. So get your head right. And the prosecutor is fierce. Absolutely fierce. This is episode six, Opening Arguments. Last time on Direct Appeal, we covered the investigation into Melanie McGuire for the murder and dismemberment of her husband. The trial against Melanie McGuire begins on March 5th, 2007 with the state's case. The first day after jury selection, when you go in and it's like, it's like this show, it's it's a production and you're, you're looking around thinking this cannot all possibly be about me. These people are not here to say that I did A, B, C, and D, like, this can't be happening. Beyond nerve-wracking, sitting there trying to think, how am I going to stand up every day? When the jury walks in the room, like, how am I even going to find my feet? How am I going to even be able to walk in there? And I was definitely not prepared for the amount of press coverage, even though the judge did limit it to one network being inside of the courtroom. It was literally live on court TV every day. So that went a whole other element of things. I mean, I, I was I was fairly well medicated at that point, but I was I was still hopeful. I was confident because I just kept clinging to the truth and this will come out. This will come out. So her first day is an intense one. She realizes the level of scrutiny, which she probably had thought about ahead of time, but now she's seeing it. The camera is on her. She's aware. It's court TV. All these people are here for her. I would imagine there was a bit of um, pretrial publicity in this case. Yeah, there was pretrial publicity as well. They didn't motion well. for a change of venue, did they? They did not motion for a change of venue. I don't I don't think so, no. no. Um, but so... Because it seems like it was probably a high profile case and it's not the sort of thing that happens every day in that area. No, uh. um, it's not. No, it's definitely not. I think for me, I I wasn't as concerned about a change of venue. What I would have been motioning for, and again, I don't have, you know, a, a legal degree, but I'm thinking possibly uh, to sequester the jury. Yeah. This is on court TV. This mm-hmm. is this is a lot of publicity. So, mm-hmm. and I think this comes into play later, but it was one of the first things and I thought. Do you want to tell the audience what sequester means in case people aren't aware? Yeah, sorry. Sequester is to basically keep the um, jury living housed at a hotel during the time they're not allowed to go home. They're not allowed to access media coverage. And this is really to make sure that they're not exposed to any outside coverage of the case, that they're able to form their own independent opinions. 
So I think this might be one of those cases where you might motion to sequester. Mm -hmm. It might be denied, but... can't hurt to try. I don't think that they tried this. So first day, what happens on the first day of trial? The state always begins. So in this case, we briefly mentioned the state. Um, There's a couple of different lawyers, but the lead prosecutor is Patricia Precioso, who we may sometimes refer to as Patty because Melanie does. Ms. Precioso earned her law degree at Brooklyn Law School, and she began her career from what I what I could find in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, working on sex crimes and homicides in roughly the 1990s to early 2000s. She It appears from her CV or her resume that she moved to the New Jersey Attorney General's Office in 2002, where she worked also in a few different divisions, and where she came to eventually try Melanie McGuire in 2007. So she's there for about five years working different criminal divisions before she gets the Melanie McGuire trial. So that's her history. She's a seasoned prosecutor by this time. So our lead prosecutor is beginning with her opening statement. There's no question. She made very forceful arguments. Unfortunately, many of them, and you know, you don't object during an opening, I get that, because at the very least, what she was saying was speculative. But, you know, one thing I should mention when it comes to openings and and even closings, the judge is careful to tell the jury these openings and these closings are not evidence. With opening arguments, it's basically sort of a sneak preview of what they plan to, to show you. So not that they can just say anything that they want, but they can put, they have a lot more creative license, if you will, with the openings. Either in the opening or pre-trial, she's talking about the fact that Bill was dead um, already by that time. Basically alleging that I kept him drugged for days on what ultimately would turn out to be a single dose of coral hydrate. She she made a point to talk about the gun being consistent with a handful of manufacturers, consistent with, consistent with, over and over. Um, she alleged that I had given a fake work address on the firearms form that I had filled out in Pennsylvania, which was incorrect. There was, there was a lot of overreaching. There's a lot of overreaching. Okay, let me summarize a bit. The prosecution opens with the fact that there was no fight on the night of the closing, like Melanie had said, but rather there was probably more of a celebration We've just that closed makes on a more house. sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a celebration. There was wine involved. Prosecution says during this time where they're consuming wine, Melanie slips a sedative, uh, a substance into tasteless, odorless. I'm assuming. Yeah, I think so. They're saying that uh, it's chloral hydrate, and we'll talk about chloral hydrate as well in the course of the investigation. But I, th- I looked it up at one point, and unless I think in you know a seriously big quantity, it's. You can integrate it into a glass of red wine for sure. They were drinking red Mm -hmm. wine that night. It was Opus. So the prosecution says she slips this into his drink with Bill basically never to wake again. Melanie had bought a gun, so she has this gun. She gives him the chloral hydrate. He is incapacitated. And at some point, she shoots him using a pillow or another object to muffle the sound. And then she spends the next few days dismembering the body (laughs) in the family shower and bringing it to the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia, where she dumped his body in three separate suitcases um, that belonged to the family into the bay. And that is where the suitcases were recovered. Uh, She says, the prosecutor says that Melanie murdered him and established the alibi then, or began to establish the alibi by requesting next day the TRO. And What is the TRO again? Temporary restraining order. Thank you. So she requests the TRO and she starts setting up bank accounts. And all of this is done to establish her alibi, basically. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there, but we're going to be going through each of those items pretty in depth. 
We are. Right? I okay. should also mention now that um, in the course of this investigation, we invited many people. We requested many people to participate. One of the key people that I would have loved to talk to would have been Patricia Precioso. So I did, in fact, contact her. And she did decline to participate. I would also add that she was, uh, she struck me as very incensed that I was covering this podcast. I told her, you know, kind of the goal that we were looking into an investigation. She seemed irritated that we would do this. She actually asked me, don't you have anything better to do with your time? Well, because re- taking another look at this case is Question- essentially questioning what she did. Questioning her work. Yep. And and make no mistake, she did her job. Yep. She prosecuted Melanie McGuire. She convicted her. Mm-hmm. And she sees it the way she would see it, and other lawyers might see it, is that, you know, the check and balance is the appeals process, right? Yep. My... My thing is, I think we all have a right to look into these cases, right? Yep. Especially when she's no longer in the public sector, but she's, a at the time, a prosecutor is a public servant. So it's not, to me, it's not just the appeal system. We're the checks and balances. Yep. We're the oversight, right? Podcasts and documentaries and other people looking in. We are the oversight now. And we've discovered, or we know now, you know, about a number of wrongful convictions. So that doesn't just happen in the appeals process. But at the time, she she did say that she would take time and think about it. But uh, she did take a while, and I checked back with her a couple times, but she declined ultimately to participate. I also got the impression, so she had asked me, uh, she had mentioned him at one point, and she, she, she said, do you know how they found Billy's body? So I did, of course. Um, she asked me, she had quizzed me about the case and aspects about it, and she wanted me to retell it and... I did. I was nervous. Why do you think she did that? To see how much I knew about it and okay. see how informed I was. Yep. I thought I was pretty informed, but, mm-hmm. you know, maybe she didn't think so. But my impression was that when she was discussing Billy's body, so I hadn't heard anyone refer to him as Billy. Melanie refers to him as Bill. And I think when I asked Melanie, she said that Cindy and the family referred to him as Billy. So mm-hmm. my impression was that the prosecutor got pretty close to this in terms of getting to know him. Uh, you know, affiliating with the family and the way they saw him. It seemed, I wasn't sure if that's, I guess, you know, you get pretty close as a prosecutor and maybe you get really close with the family, but that was something that I was struck with. So Mm -hmm. there are questions as we go through this that I would certainly have loved to ask the prosecutor. And by the way, I still would. Mm -hmm. I told her at the time that she could change her mind at any point if she wanted to. We would be happy to um, speak with her at a later point if she'd like to. So we'll note the questions that we have as we go along. So there's a forceful opening. They come out of the gate strong. And then the next point or the next step is you move over to the defense. They make their opening arguments. I thought it was a strong start if we could deliver on what we were saying. Steve was very forceful. He specifically said, hold us to our promises. Hold us to our promises that we're going to demonstrate that, you know, he owed money out on the street. And that's how you get shot here and here, you know, gesturing toward his his head and his chest. I, you know, I don't want to say that that was an overreach necessarily, but when you're telling the jury, hold us to our promises, and you don't have a string of people lined up ready to 
back that up. Now, at this point, I'm believing that we do. I'm believing that the things that we're working on are going to to lead to this. But there was, and how much of it is just typical legal blustering? And, and it's also frustrating when you're not permitted by the court to argue certain things because they're either disparaging to the character of the deceased or there isn't, you know, something's hearsay or it, there's a lot of feeling hamstrung at different points in the process. Lawyers will tell you over and over, you are not legally obligated to present a defense. You can just sit there and shut up and the defense rests and it is, the burden of proof is on the state. However, if you don't tell your story in one form or another and tell it to the best of the ability that you have, the jury thinks you don't have a story. And that's just human nature. That just is what it is, whether it should be that way, shouldn't be that way. And I've had friends and family say that to me over and over. Patty told a story. Whether it was grounded in fact, whether things were inconsistent, she told a story. Whereas we didn't so much. We were basically on the ropes from the beginning. So it sounds like most of the defense's case, as Melanie describes it, is um, answering claims put forth by the prosecution not creating this story. Yes. And that's a very strong point. Without the story, there's nothing to go on. Now, I'm wondering, why didn't Joe do the opening statement if he was sort of the presence in that, that duo, isn't that? I'm not sure why Steve did yeah. the opening, but I know that Joe was going to do the closing. So Got maybe it. that's the way they, and it's a lot of work, openings yeah. and closing. Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, he, Steve was focusing on the opening, yep. lays the road Closing's more important anyway, so. Closing's more important. And also Joe was going to do a lot of the cross-examination. Oh, okay. So I think he probably had his hands full. I don't mm-hmm. know, they had decided the work, but, yeah. you know, Melanie felt good about it. She felt like Steve did deliver a strong opening. She felt confident. One thing she points out is Steve Toronto says, hold us to our promises. And the problem is they did not deliver later on on that. And I I think that was a a real problem. Mm -hmm. You know, he talked about in the opening that there were, you know, Melanie didn't do this. There's other possibilities. And one of them is that, you know, Bill had money out on the street for gambling. Well, he never really showed that. And so you can't say that if you're not going to back it up. Well, so they're not backing. They don't back up their claims later on very well. And also they don't tell a story. And I I did talk to Melanie about that because this was true. Patty told a very clear story. Mm -hmm. She had one um, Mm -hmm. and she fit it with the timeline. And a lot of the a lot of it works. They told nothing. Um, And you don't have to. She's right. As a defense attorney, all you have to do is show a crack in the case, right? Show Mm -hmm. reasonable doubt. But doesn't it help if you can rebut it with a better story? Yeah. Or with some story? Doesn't that kind of help you? Yeah, because at the end of the day, the jury is trying to find justice for the victim, right? Right. So if you don't have an alternate explanation for how someone ended up dead, then, right? I I think there should have, I mean, I think, you know, we don't, we're we're not lawyers and Mm -mm. we don't practice, but I think... Not yet. It it would. Yeah, right. Not yet. That's right. I forgot. (laughs) Not yet. Um, But I think it would be... I don't know, in this case, maybe just it would have been helpful if they had some type of story. Mm -hmm. So we move on after the opening statements. Both sides come out strong and the prosecution goes first. They put on their case first and the prosecution called a lot of witnesses. Uh, The defense will call much fewer. They will only call, you know, a handful or two dozen maybe. But the prosecution, I think it's north of 50. I think the exact number was 62 witnesses. So you just sort of picked out the strongest ones. Yeah. So we obviously can't cover every single witness. So we're going to cover major witnesses, major pieces of testimony, major evidence. And we try to move um, somewhat sequentially through the trial, but it wasn't always possible because what happened is 
they they jump around. Mm-hmm. Um, they go to a certain witness about one piece of evidence and then they go to someone else and then come back to that. And that has a lot to do with availability too of witnesses. Yeah. If one's not available, you have to just do it, you know, based mm-hmm. on availability yeah. and to some degree. So we try to group things together. Um, the state begins with the detective, Ray Piquel. Uh, this is the Virginia Beach detective who was part of processing, you know, when the, Bill's body was found in the suitcases. He was one of the initial detectives to pick up this case, and that's where they begin. The state started with the location of the, the body with the homicide detectives in Virginia. Detective Piquel was, he was very, um, almost dragnetish, like just facts man, very dry. There was a lot of good information that came from him. Basically, they were setting the stage of how these suitcases came to be found and where they believed the suitcases got deposited into the Chesapeake Bay. Their their theory was that the suitcases were dumped over the side of the, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. So, yeah, they got in there somehow. It wasn't me. So Detective Piquel, he was the one who made the positive identification on Bill's body using the fingerprints. So... He has a lot of information. He's he spent that, I think the interview was about an hour with Melanie. So he's relating all of this information about the suitcases being found, about the identification being made. And he's talking about the interview. He also conducted the first search of Melanie's home. Remember, she had acquiesced at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while he's giving a lot of this information, one of the things I asked Melanie was, well, did he help or hurt? And she said it was kind of a draw because on the cross-examination, they were able to show, again, that Melanie was pretty cooperative. And that's also an interesting point because sometimes a prosecution witness turns out actually being more favorable for the defense. So it's because he was a prosecution. He was a prosecution witness. He's a detective. And I think, you know, it might have been a draw. It might not have been. He's establishing the facts. Again, he's a Mm -hmm. facts man. But he does help. I I think he maybe helps Melanie's case a little bit on uh, the cross. From there, we spent a a bunch of time with the Virginia Beach investigators. We did some strong cross-examination on that because, again, I had been cooperative with that portion of the investigation. And my team wanted to demonstrate that. They wanted to illustrate the fact that, you know, no, you didn't have a warrant. You didn't have to get one because she signed the consent. When Virginia Beach did visit me, they said, you know, I, I mentioned the storage facility to them. And they said, well, can, can we go take a look around? And I said, sure, I'll meet you there tomorrow morning. And I met them there, opened the first one, which had the, the bulk of the, the furniture and the large stuff in it. And I took them to the smaller one. Now, this is the one with storage bin with, ostensibly, at least in my mind, the gun in it. I said nothing to them about that, but they had access to it. I signed a consent form. I let them take a look around. And in fact, I handed Bill's old wallet to them. I said, this is his wallet. It still has some stuff in it. And they actually took it and eventually gave it back to me. And this is a wallet that later the New Jersey prosecution would say somehow proved that, you know, who would leave this card behind or who would leave that behind. Well, it, it was this old wallet, and I handed it to Virginia Beach. So at some point in those next few days, Virginia Beach had called me and told me they located the car and that it was apparently at an impound that it had been towed. And did I have a set of keys? And I had, like, the valet key. 
And I said, sure. And I actually drove down the parkway, met them halfway between my parents' house in Atlantic City, signed a consent form so that they wouldn't have to take the time to get a warrant, anything. So at every point, see Sunday, at any point where they're asking for my assistance, I'm lending. The wallet. Yeah, the wallet. Here's here's the wallet. So I asked about the wallet as well, of course, right? Well, what's Bill's wallet doing? Well, it was his old wallet and it had a social security card in it. It didn't have anything. I said, to have a license, credit card? No, because the kids gave him an Easter present, like for daddy. Daddy got mm-hmm. a new wallet, you know? Oh, that makes sense. I thought it was a wallet that had all of his no. current belongings. Oh, I have old wallets laying around. I oh. do too. I okay. actually looked That's through no my big stuff. Deal. I remembered I had a wallet too. I looked through my stuff and you know what it had in it? My social security card. So. Oh, really? That's funny. Yeah. Mine has like old school and I have IDs. An, I have and... an old license in mine as yeah. well. So I, no. At first I was like, oh boy, that's not good. No, but no. That doesn't um, seem... The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Was the prosecution trying to make something of that? Of the wallet? Yeah, they I were. think so. Uh, I think Did it the defense was... sort of show this fact that it clearly was an old wallet because it didn't have his current stuff in it? Or was that... I'm not sure how they clarified that. Okay. I, I know that it came out that it was just a, you know, a wallet that didn't contain okay, that, all so of his it information. Okay. But I'm not Good. sure how they, how they... Okay, as long as that came out. I'm not sure how they laid that out, though. But yeah, I don't think the wallet was... That wasn't such a big deal for me as well. Again, you know, the point here is the cross was they were trying to score points showing Melanie consented and helped. She was helpful. Yeah, but I mean, if let's say you're guilty, being helpful because you know (laughs) where things are, you know there's no evidence in that storage unit that's going to work against you. Yeah, sure. Go to the storage unit. Sure. You know? Okay. So So that's where they start. So they move on. And uh, one of the key, one of the key issues in this case is going to become the searches of the apartment. The prosecution contends that the apartment was the crime scene. They never changed that story from what I know. This is, you know, that Melanie killed Bill here. She dismembered him here. So the apartment they live in is the crime scene. So it should be quite a bloodbath if she dismembered a whole body in that apartment. So uh, we would think so, right? We're going to discuss that in indefinite uh, length here. So Ray Piquel, I believe, uh, Detective Piquel, sorry, was the first to search the apartment, but it was the first of many searches. That apartment was searched, to my knowledge, between four and five times, and I think it was actually five. So Melanie had given consent at first, but that was just the first time. Any sense on when the first one was? Is that First one was quickly. Remember, after he interviewed her? Um, like soon after the body was found. Yes. So, so first about search, four weeks. Yes. After. But I don't know the timeline of the other searches. Okay. I do know that they actually moved a family out at one point to conduct the searches. So. Another search. like a, okay. Yeah. So let's hear about the searches. The thing with the Woodbridge apartment is Mr. Lesniak personally was present for four different examinations. I know it was luminols. Well, there was no reaction for blood. 
when asked if the bleach would have reacted, Mr. Lesniak said, yes, if enough water was used, you wouldn't see the bleach, which kind of plays into why ultimately the cops would go and subpoena my water bill to see if I had used an excessive or an unusual amount of water. They took not only the drains out, they cut portions of the PVC pipe out as well. They swabbed inside whatever plumbing trap, um, the, the bathtub, and Mr. Lesniak testified to care being, particular care being paid to the two upstairs bathrooms. Well, the swab from the tub was negative for blood. Some of the swabbings were what they called a presumptive positive for blood, meaning it turns the test positive, but this test apparently reacts with other things. So if they get a presumptive positive for blood, they, I guess, retain the trap or whatever at that point and do what they need to do. But there was, upon further testing, there was no DNA. There was, there was no DNA found. One would imagine if you have blood, you have DNA. Initially, that was done after I had moved out of the apartment before anybody else had had moved in. Two of those times, I believe, one for sure that I know possibly to actually involved moving the family that resided there out. So the work was going to be extensive enough. Another time, I know they went back in there and they just swapped the air filters and the air traps and stuff like that. But the one time, they physically paid for them to relocate everything so they could get in there and basically get into the walls every place they could. So they found nothing. They found nothing. So let's recap this real quickly. Okay. They they pulled up tile. They went into the walls. They pulled out drains. They cut part of the PVC piping. They vacuumed air vents. Do we have any sense how long that biological material would survive? It would have survived. Right? Because it was only, some. what, four to six weeks? Or They would have found some, for they sure. They would have found yeah, something, no. right? We're talking about, they found nothing. They would, I mean, you can I mean, find... We're talking about bone, tissue, blood. I mean, DNA. All of that. I'm glad you point that they're out. they're claiming that he was dismembered. Yes. The extent to which they did this, I mean, obviously, this search, they they were looking. Yeah. And they really, truly, they found nothing. Wow. I mean, this is after four or five searches, too. They're finding nothing. I think this is a problem. Uh, you know, let's also talk about the apartment layout. I want to I wanna give you a little bit about the description of how the apartment lays out. It's going to play a role here, but it also is going to help us later on. Because so. Melanie did mention they were most interested in two upstairs bathrooms. They were interested in bathrooms. Um, yeah, let's hear a little okay. bit. Detective Jurasky, who was the Woodbridge PD detective who was interviewed, he went on very early on. He's sitting there saying, okay, you know, this is what the, the complex looks like. He's accurately describing the layout, the apartments, what side we face. And it's your classic townhouse layout. There's a basement that has a laundry area. First floor has your dining room, living room, kitchen, and a small bath. And the third floor is where the bedrooms are. So it's it's nothing that's really strange or anything, except for the fact that it does have, you know, three levels. It's more spacious than most. And again, there's so much else that he was saying in the least flattering way to me imaginable. And he said there was a common wall. Later on down the line, she's introducing photographs and she's saying, well, these, there's actually a space here between the end units and the six apartments. So there's actually a disconnect to me. And maybe I just, you know, watch too much TV. This is where you put the jury on a bus and drive them past the place so they can see it for themselves. For a team that was back in that apartment five times, five separate occasions to the point you're moving tenants out after the fact and going back in, don't tell me you're not intimately acquainted 
with the layout of this. So it was, I would assert, willfully mis- mischaracterized. They did make a point of saying, I don't have any neighbors right directly across the way from me. Okay, that's fair. That's fine. Beyond that, there wasn't anything. But she made a point, Ms. Prezioso, of articulating that there was this physical disconnect between the end units and the middle units, this gap, as it were, that didn't exist. Now, why this is important... I was just going to ask you that. Why this is important for a couple of reasons. The first one being the apartment layout and what she's talking about on the outside. The implication was that Melanie could have committed this crime here, which included gunshots because she, her apartment was, you know, kind of, there was a gap. She's not connected to the other apartments. Meaning that if there's no common wall, no one else would have heard it? Right. That like there's, the it, she's less, she's got this, if you'll see, she's got this unit that doesn't really connect to the others, like most of the other townhouses. Now, we actually went to the location. We're going to put up photographs and you'll be able to see that while it was, it was a corner unit certainly was attached. It had a unit on one side and attached diagonally. So we're talking about a couple. This is not a distinct or a separate. There's no huge gap. So it's actually attached. There's two common walls? Yeah, there's definitely. There's one behind and one on like the, the, depending on which way you're facing, the left or right. But they're both common walls or they're, meaning like they're, um, yeah, common walls. Yeah, Yeah, they are. Um, Now it's also, her, her complex, her apartment was kind of on an end, like it was at the end. So Past that, there's no more units. They're facing like a parking lot of something else. So you could argue that it's a little bit more desolate than the other ones because it's not in the middle. Mm -hmm. Um, But they are still connected and they share common walls. Now, why this is important relates to the theory of uh, Melanie um, shooting Bill in the apartment. And the theory here, I believe it, or the prosecution's theory here is that she shot him using something to silence the weapon like a pillow. So Mm -hmm. something to muffle the sound. Mm -hmm. And this is the theory. There were fibers that were located around one of the bullets, I believe. And they allege something was used to silence this to the point where they took samples of every pillow, sofa, couch, love seat, anything. If it had upholstery and filling, it got tested. Nothing was consistent with that that fabric. So still can't to this day say, say where that came from. So we also, you know, we wanted to get more of a handle on this, on this gun, the gun issue, which is going to come up in a minute. But just this issue right now, um, we did speak to an expert. Here's uh, what Stephen Batzer had to say, and he is a forensic mechanical engineer. Here's what he had to say about this idea that Melanie would muffle the gun with a pillow. There's going to be a pretty big noise, whether you use a pillow or not, a, a modern sound attenuator, which people call silencers, are extremely sophisticated. Is is it possible that a person could put a, a pillow up and, and get some noise reduction? Well, sure, but sounds pretty dicey to me. Uh, I would think that if they had indicated that a pillow had been used, that they should have backed that up with a test determining what the sound level is from that model of Taurus with their, the style of bullet that they think it was, both with and without a pillow. I think it sounds pretty dicey, too. I've never liked this idea here, the insinuation that she's going to, uh, the the plan here, the genius plan here is to shoot her husband in the apartment with her two children, and the apartment is attached to others, 
and she's going to muffle these shots with some a, a pillow or something else. Why couldn't else. she have used a silencer? Okay, there. Are, now you're thinking like like <laughs> I was thinking. So if she's buying this gun and she's you know she's not smart enough to know, she thinks she's not going to get caught. Why the hell doesn't she just buy a silencer too? Then yeah, I agree. But could she have? She could have used a silencer and just she didn't purchase one. Okay, because we oh, know she purchased. Yep, we the know gun. what she purchased. We know that she. Pur- and we'll get into the gun I mean, in a little bit. It is possible that she purchased one elsewhere. There was no record of it. I don't think so. Is there a record when people yep. buy silencers? Uh, there would be. Um, well, I don't know if there's a record because you know guns. Obviously, there's right, usually. But she purchased the firearm two days before. Um, okay, and she, why would she have had had a silencer prior to purchasing the gun? Right, that doesn't wouldn't. make sense. Okay, she, she didn't. I mean, th- I think we can assume that for all, look, the prosecution never said she had a silencer, but yeah, there's my no- question is then, why wouldn't she? She doesn't think she's going to get caught. She doesn't, you know, she's not worried yeah. about buying a gun, going into a gun store. So why not? Yeah. So uh, I agree with this assessment that, I don't know, it sounds dicey. I think that was the best way he yep. would say it. Mm-hmm. So in the end here, I mean, the apartment, I don't think the prosecution, I think they have a problem here. For me, it's a problem as well. They're searching the apartment. There's nothing found. They have to account for the fact that they've said, you know, that he's been dismembered here. Um, they also have to explain, again, gunshots happening and how nobody heard this. So is it a problem? Well, is it a problem for you? What do you think? Yeah, I'm not convinced. I don't, I'm not convinced at all that the crime happened there. That doesn't mean that Melanie did not do it. Right. But I feel pretty, based on the evidence we have, it doesn't seem like a crime was committed in that apartment. Well, this is how the prosecution handle it. Prosecution would say that they found nothing because Melanie cleaned up so well. (laughs) She cleaned up the pipes and the trees. I mean, (laughs) she cleaned up so well, but they would actually have a witness. The prosecution would have a witness who would help support this claim. So let's hear what this witness had to say about Melanie's cleaning the apartment. A co-worker of mine who testified at trial had come over and purchased some of the furniture. She was ultimately the one who testified that there was a heavy bleach smell in the house. Even though Dr. Miller testified, he didn't smell it that day, and he was in the house pretty much almost simultaneously. Much about the cleaning of the house they made, much about the fact that we were painting the walls. Yet it was never presented at trial that that's in my lease. We had vibrant colors on the walls. We had a dark green downstairs. We had a a deep coral upstairs. You know, we had to return the walls to neutral colors or I wasn't getting what was close to a $3,000 security deposit. And they made it seem like it was some insidious, you know, cleaning of a crime scene, which, by the way, it wouldn't matter if I painted over it or not. Let's just hear Linda and Celine both also talk about the smell of bleach. So let's hear what they have to say as well. Okay. Give me a break. I cleaned the apartment. I cleaned the apartment and I'm sitting here telling you on the lives of my grandchildren, and I would never say that lightly, that I cleaned that apartment. That apartment had normal household dirt. I cleaned it to get her her security Security back. We painted the walls to get her security back. Oh, they painted the walls to cover up blood. Give me a break. They were like dark green walls. Now, you know you're not going to get your money back. She needed her security deposit back. So Michael and I went in there. I watched her mattress go out of that house pristine white mattress i never 
ever, ever. And of course, I'm her mother. Everyone's going to say you're her mother. I was in that apartment. There was nothing in that apartment. So were they called to testify about, especially Linda, who sounds like she really feels very strongly and she was there cleaning and painting. She never testified? No, you probably don't remember. But early on when we spoke to her, one of the things I asked her was, Linda, did they ever think to, did they ever talk about calling you? I think they thought it was her mother. So who's going to, who's not going to lie for their daughter? That's what they do. I was thinking, yeah, right. But they've called mothers um, before. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Cindy Anthony went up as a witness. I actually think Linda would have made a very good witness. Very, um, she would. Credible. She's credible. She's She's truthful. I think she would have made a good witness. They were going to have someone testify. I think it was the manager. I'm not really sure why he didn't, but the manager of the lease company would have shown the lease saying she'd lose her security deposit. So she's claiming that, you know, she was cleaning. Basically, she wanted to get $3,000 back. Although your response is what? She already spent $500 on cabs. So why is she worried about $3,000 now? (laughs) But that's that's the point, you know. Um, And I I do believe that. I I believe she had other people helping her clean. I believe Mm -hmm. it smelled like, you know, bleach. It's not, I don't think the bleach smell was you know, was indicative of a dead person, but rather people who were cleaning an apartment. Yeah. And I think the prosecution maybe said something like, give me a break who cleans that well, right? But if it's $3,000, I clean that well. Oh, I do too. Yeah, (laughs) no, I do anything to get my money back. So, so while the prosecution doesn't really have much from the apartment, they, they don't, they did find what what they coined human sawdust in, or skin tissue in Bill's car after they vacuumed the car. If you recall, Melanie gave them permission. She gave them the keys to the car. So let's talk about this human sawdust. You know, human sawdust, they're trying to make it sound like, um, you know, I dismembered a body and walked through tissue, blood, whatever. First of all, if I'm doing that, you're probably going to find it somewhere when you go through the apartment. But that didn't happen. Uh, what they purported it to be was tissue found in the vacuuming of both sides of the car. It was often mischaracterized. And essentially what occurred was there were 11 or 12 samples of these, what they, they thought it was tissue. Uh, Mr. Lesniak had identified these. My attorney was ultimately able to demonstrate that there's no way to tell this how long it's been there. Dr. Hua, the medical examiner, Joe questioned him about, and that doctor did acknowledge that, yes, it could come from a living human being, but that you would see potentially some sort of scar or some small, you you would visualize an injury. I think the examples Joe used was closing your watch band on your wrist could elicit such, such an injury. And again, these were microscopic pieces of tissue because when you hear it, I mean, it sounds ghastly. It sounds like, oh my God. Yeah, because you think of actual palpable sawdust. You know, it's not like bone tissue where you're like, okay, you know, that person obviously was either grievously injured or killed. This is not that. These are still epidermal cells. They're just under the surface. They're not passively shed. So again, something like a small injury could could have been the source. And this is how it all ties together. Because I am the person seen parking the car. And because I am the last person seen with the vehicle that it would then stand that it would have to be me. Where the passenger side comes in then, I'm unclear on. Well, they say I have an accomplice. They intimate who it is. And they're trying to intimate that my father or another family member picked me up right down the block. 
with this fuzzy, grainy picture where you don't even see anybody getting into the car. I mean, it's just they're trying to draw this uninterrupted timeline from when the car is parked to when it's towed. So this quote-unquote human sawdust was only found in the passenger seat of Bill's car. Mm-hmm. Nowhere yes. else. So why could—and it was confirmed that it was his— Yes. Cells. Yes, it was skill. And it's not, so you should understand that it is not the the skin that we passively shed, yeah. the dust that flicks yeah. off of us. It's deeper tissue. It's connective tissue. So but that, it could be from a cut or something. It's yes, honestly. it could be. So what happened was on Dr. Hua, the medical examiner, and we have transcripts to this, mm-hmm. you know, the prosecution elicited that it definitely came from Bill. So it seems, you know, that's that's damning, right? That seems like, well, we've got this it tissue. It doesn't point to Melanie, though. Well, what happens is, well, I would argue that as well, but I would also say on Cross, um, Joe does a good job here, and he, he elicits a few things. First of all, uh, just because it's from Bill, does that mean he's dead? No. Dr. Hua says, no, it can be from living. Mm-hmm. We can't tell if it's from yeah. living or dead. So, okay. So is it then so crazy to think that Bill's skin is in Bill's car? Um, Joe says, is is there possible that it comes from a small injury like clasping, yeah. I, I believe he actually yeah. used the example of uh-huh. clasping your skin in a watch. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, that's possible. And the third point then, I guess, is that, yeah, it, it, even if it is, um, does this mean necessarily that it's Melanie yeah. who did it? I mean, clearly Bill's dead, right? So it's not outlandish to think that it's his cells and it has to do with maybe the foul play, right? But it doesn't in no way does it connect Melanie. I said anyway, the same thing. I agree. It's, all, it's totally irrelevant to trial. Well, they don't think so because they're <laughs> they're the prosecution oh, it thinks with their story. The, the prosecution thinks that they're she transferred these cells mm-hmm. from even though they couldn't find anything in the apartment, <laughs> she somehow walked into it and on the bottom of her shoe she transferred these cells into the passenger side. Yet there's no blood found on her shoes no or like blood. And there's anywhere. no blood found on the skin cells either. So yeah. it, it, wouldn't you find blood? I agree with that point too. I think if someone's dismembered. Yes. The skin cells for me are uh, a wash. It, it There's nothing. Be, yeah. I don't I don't think this is a convincing. They're grasping po- at straws, it seems like. Uh, on this point, they yeah, are, on right? this point. I, I don't think yes. this, I think this is weak. For mm-hmm. me, this is weak. Agreed. You know, a juror might and disagree. And I don't think they need it. I think they have enough strong evidence elsewhere. You well, know? they see it as a strong, yeah. I think, uh, yeah. I think that they saw it as a strong point. They must point. have if they included it, right? Yeah, but it turns out um, that Patty would have, or the prosecution would have, a much stronger evidence, and she's going to introduce the gun that Melanie purchased. The smoking gun, the sp- so to speak. No I, use that, I use that for the forensics now, so I'm not sure if we can use that one again, no. but yeah, the smoke, <laughs> damn it. I missed the pun opportunity, but... Um, so yes, yeah, so Melanie bought a Taurus 38 revolver on April 26, 2004. And Bill goes missing on April 28th, 2004. That's when the closing was April 28th yeah. and when he goes missing. So she, she buys a, a revolver, a 38, again, a Taurus 38 revolver, two days before Bill disappears. Okay. Oh, okay. So I, I mean, think that's more of... So I guess the most important question is obvious. Did those bullets come from that gun? Did those bullets come from that gun? Okay, well, it's we're going to get into that. It's hard to show that, but I will say this. The bullets that were recovered were wadcutter bullets, and wadcutter bullets are also what Melanie purchased. 
How common are those? Hold balls? off. I'm get, okay, I, no, I'm sorry, going there. I'm too excited. I'm going here. there. No, this is an exciting topic. <laughs> I, I really, I, this is very exciting. So I, I want to point out that they brought in a witness. The prosecution is bringing in a witness here, and his name is Jim Finn. And this is an old friend of Melanie's, uh, a nursing school friend. And his purpose is that she had contacted him and she was conversing with him about purchasing a gun. Melanie contends that she did this because Bill wanted a gun and he could not get one because he was a felon. Um, She said that Bill, according to her, was nagging her kind of, I want a gun. If you don't help me, I'm just going to go ahead and get it. Melanie, not knowing much about guns, wanted to find out more how she could do so. So she says that she's asking her friend Jim about it. But she's not asking in a direct way. She's asking in a in a in a backhanded way, and almost as if she has something to hide. She's asking in a way that's well. Let you know what. Let's hear how she okay. asks. Jim Finn was a friend of mine that I had gone to nursing school with. The thing about Jim is that he was a self-described gun aficionado. So he owned guns, loved guns. So when I needed information regarding a gun, he's the person um, that I went to. I asked him what the process was uh, in Pennsylvania, because in New Jersey, you have to fill out the paperwork, you have to get approved ahead of time, you have to, so at this point now, I've got Bill telling me, forget it, I'm just going to go get it at work, meaning on the streets of Newark, and that's certainly not a stretch. We did a lot of this back and forth via email, so it's it's there to be read, but ultimately, I was trying to elicit the information of what was the process, how long did it take. Now, Jim, at several points in our friendship, made it clear to me that he wanted more than friendship, and I pretty conclusively shut him down every time. But he wasn't, you know, a menacing, stalkery kind of, you know, he he seemed like a good guy. He was a decent guy. He testified that he had himself continued to have feelings for me even after learning of my affair with Brad. He was jealous because of the affair with Brad. You know, at this point, he had always tried to get me to purchase one, to train with one. To, he really felt strongly about them. And I had always really been very anti-gun. I didn't want it in my house. So when I went to him asking about this, there's no question that this represented um, a change in my attitude. I knew that if I explained to him that the reason I was getting this was for my husband who could not purchase it, and he knew a lot of, you know, my background with Bill, I knew he wouldn't help me. I was absolutely less than candid with him about it to the point of, I would say, even a little manipulative to get the information um, that I wanted. Not my not my best look, not one of my finest moments, but I did tell him, you know, that Bill had been behaving erratically, um, which was the truth, and that I was contemplating making changes and that, you know, I felt like I should have one. He basically took that to mean, which is the way I made it sound, that I wanted it to protect myself against Bill as opposed to handing it over to him. And and that's fair. Well, at least she's honest. Yeah. The prosecution approached Jim Finn as well. You know, he was involved and perhaps they thought he was an accomplice. Yeah. But he also cooperated and he also um, wore uh, t- or a wire. A wire, sorry. I'm trying to think. Or made recordings uh, against Melanie. And he also testified at trial. So the issue... More so here is the fact that she lied about what, obviously the prosecution saying she wanted the gun because she was going to kill her husband, right? Yeah. 
Okay, so what is the big deal about her well, lying to him about why she? Well, they're saying she's she needed help. No, she she needed help. She didn't know much about guns, right? So who does she go to? Um, she goes to a friend, and then she manipulates him. Yeah, she's lying to him, right? Mm-hmm. But the gun. They're assuming the gun is, again, for her. So she's using someone else to kind of help in this plan to gather a gun, which is probably, yeah. I think, probably what Jim Finn, he, he, the prosecution, and when he becomes involved, I think maybe it was implied that he might be an accomplice Got it. to her. I think actually he even received some type of immunity or something for yeah. his testimony. Mm-hmm. And, you know. She mentioned He that- was not, by the way, he was not yeah. an accomplice yeah. in any way. She mentioned something about it's all in the emails. Emails between who? Her and Jim? Yeah, her and Jim. Yes. Okay, so what What she just said is all in the emails. Yeah, okay. That's it. Um, But she purchased the gun uh, with her real identification. She Mm -hmm. purchased it in Pennsylvania. Quite frankly, a lot of Pennsylvania is an easier state than New Jersey Mm -hmm. to get guns. And Jim had helped, you know, make her clear of that. Also, she had uh, a a Pennsylvania license, I'm pretty sure. And that's where the license plate. Yeah, their their cars were registered there. So it's not that— They never lived there, though. No, they didn't live there. They were using an address of a family member. But she used her real identification. There was no attempt to conceal anything. She went into a gun store. She's not in a mask. She didn't disguise her appearance. She's going in as her, and she's purchasing the firearms. if you're going to kill someone, you know, anyone with a brain knows you don't buy a gun two days before with your real identification. This is what I think. Right. So I think anyone with a brain, and I think we should also point out that Melanie's intelligent. She's very intelligent. You know, she's an intelligent woman. I don't buy it that she's going to be this dumb, to be honest, <laughs> to be frank, this dumb that she's going to two days before go in, use her ID. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe, I mean, you could argue, counter argue. You could think the counter argument is that who would she's, be that dumb <laughs> no, or she's going into Pennsylvania. It's not her home state. Maybe she doesn't know they can, you know, track between. And also yep. the other, uh, the idea here is that if she thinks they're never going to find her husband's body, That's then true. maybe she doesn't think there's ever going to be a cause to look at the gun. They found the gun in her nope. storage unit. They did not. They found the gun box, the lock box. So where does she claim the gun is? That Bill took it with him when he left. Oh, because she claimed that it was Bill's gun. Yeah. And then he so grabbed So they it. never found the gun. Never found the gun. But a lot of this is just arguing because the real definitive way yeah. to tell whether or not bullets came from a gun is with that gun, of which course. was never recovered. Before we get into that, there's some terminology here. I want our expert to provide us. We need a little foundation here. So our expert, again, his name is Stephen Batzer. He's independent. We went to him. He has no vested stake in this case. He is a forensic mechanical engineer. He's worked on over 30 cases, including criminal cases and product liability cases. He can be found at www.batzerengineering.com. And he's going to lay the foundation here and explain some of the terminology we need for this discussion. After uh, muskets had been used for a while, it was realized that if the projectile would spin in flight, the accuracy improved and the point of impact of the projectile downrange was much more predictable. So what you have to do is have a helix inside of the barrel to force the projectile or the bullet to spin as it travels from the back end to the front end. You cut grooves into it so that there are two diameters. And the smaller diameter is called the land diameter, and the larger diameter is called the groove diameter. The lead of the bullet is squeezed into the grooves 
due to the pressure of being forced along. These are all different based upon manufacturer. You would expect that the number of lands and grooves may be different, or the width of the groove might be different, or the depth of the groove, or how sharp it is. Okay, the lands and grooves. This is going to play a big role in Melanie's defense or refuting uh, that this was her gun that was used in this crime. So the prosecution is saying that it was a firearm that was consistent with this Taurus 38 revolver. Lands and grooves were also, you know, you can identify the bullet. The lands and grooves on the bullets can also help you trace back to the gun. So this is an important point. Now, the prosecution calls a firearms expert. She had a ballistics guy, I want to say from the FBI, John Ward, and he was talking about the fact that he couldn't say for sure if it was just the six manufacturers that she said this bullet, this discharge was consistent with. Again, constant repetition of consistent with. I have a difficult time understanding how it is that these bullets had six lands and grooves in them, which is completely inconsistent with what Taurus's own website said and any FBI rifling characteristics website. No one can produce anything of this model that has these six lands and grooves. Everything said five until my legal team raised the issue. And Taurus themselves even tout, so our website is, is used to help law enforcement. So finally, when we raise it as an issue, then Taurus turns around and says, well, it's five or six. We, we don't keep track. So I have a real difficult time believing that the state did not know that. But if it's anywhere in writing that these characteristics, these weapons all had five, and these bullets came out with six, we would have been entitled to know that. 40,000 pages of discovery. I don't know how you stop it consistent with. Here's the lands and grooves issue. The bullets in Bill's body had six lands and grooves, which the prosecution's expert says is consistent with Melanie's make and model. But Melanie's side says that her gun actually only produces five lands and grooves. So this is a big difference. Um, The state got the CEO of Taurus to testify, and they said that it could be five or six, but the Taurus website had said something, had said only five prior to that testimony. They changed it after? It was changed afterwards, which is like really, after the CEO testified, they changed it. Also, Melanie's team will go out, and I, I don't know if they did it now or later, but they're going to go out to gun shows and try to locate any gun that has this, you know, the the five. And to date, they couldn't find any. So they're saying, look, we can't find any. Um, and CEO of Taurus is saying, well, it can happen. But it wasn't in any databases that way. So the fact of the matter is we haven't been able to find anything. Sounds shady. Yeah, there is this difference between five lens and grooves and six. And, you know, Melanie's gun, they can't find any to date that have... Any sense on how many they looked at? A lot At the gun shows, there were a number of them, but our expert also looks, and he's going to speak on this issue as well. I asked Melanie about this. This seems like a big point. You know, did this come out at trial? And it's she a, it said... It sounds like it's a point for appeal. It is a point for appeal, and it will be a point for appeal, but I asked her, how does this come out in trial? Like, uh-huh. what's the deal? And she describes a little bit about how they didn't quite get it. When people are saying it's consistent with... You're implying there's an impression there that, oh, that's the best we can do, that this is where it stops. It's consistent with these weapons, when in fact you could, as we've done post-trial, go out and 
retain a firearms expert, have somebody who is conversant in firearms or law enforcement test fire a number of guns that are of that same make and model, you know, go out to gun shows. We've done all of this. And of the, I think, 12 or 13 weapons that we've located that are of this specific make and model, not one of them has the six lands and grooves that the bullets that came out of my husband had. All of them have five. Again, we've not been able to identify one single weapon anywhere that is consistent with this but has the six that the state alleges it, it, it might have had. And we only knew to even ask after the fact. You know, up until that point, you're sitting there like, okay, consistent with, and we're going the route of our, it's consistent with Taurus, it's also consistent with Smith & Wesson, with this manufacturer, that manufacturer, and, and that information was echoed, was put out there. Yeah, it's consistent with at least six manufacturers, so it doesn't mean that Taurus has to be the one, but we were missing the point completely, and we didn't even know it. The serial number of my weapon, which is right there in the discovery, right there in the trial record, plugs it into Taurus's own website and up come the rifling characteristics, specifically stating five lands and grooves, right, twist, you know, whatever. And again, only when we pushed the matter did Taurus alter their their website. Nobody wanted to go on record as saying, oh, shit, yeah, it's clearly not the weapon because the prosecution is saying, well, of course it's the weapon and she got rid of it so that it couldn't be tested, so that it couldn't be, you know, whatever. Nobody even knew to ask that question. That information was discovered later on, post-conviction. The only question that was asked of our expert was basically, are you sure it's a 38? Is it possible it's a 40? So this casts some doubt on the on the prosecution's case that yeah. this is definitely the gun. I do want to point out, though, that Melanie said her team had found like, what, 10 to 13 guns and none of them had six. Or maybe the one that had six, they're choosing not to report. I'm just saying it's possible. Possible. That it exists and they're just turning a blind eye because the majority of the ones they're seeing have five. I mean... Also, the wad cutter bullets are an issue that I think... um, Wad cutter bullets are not common. Let's hear about the wad cutter bullets quickly, okay? A wad cutter bullet is a target bullet. When you shoot in competition, people want to have accurate scoring of the targets. And what's necessary for that is that the paper is cleanly cut rather than torn. And so a wad cutter bullet is a squat cylinder. It doesn't have a pointed nose like we think of with bullets. Instead of a point first hitting the paper, hits the paper flat and cuts a nice clean hole and it's easy to score. If Melanie purchased wad cutter bullets with this 38, that might have been what was available for sale. And if she's not a sophisticated purchaser, well, they're just they're just bullets. A wad cutter bullet is almost exclusively used in revolvers. There are there are a couple of uh, handguns that are auto loaders and they usually cost more than a thousand dollars. They're out of the normal person's price range and people who who shoot in competition purchase those only. So a wad cutter bullet, if that were recovered from the body, then that was almost certainly fired in a revolver. 
if I were like a hitman, I probably wouldn't use wad cutter bullets. Uh, virtually no one who is carrying a pistol for self-defense or is in a member of the military or is uh, a police officer would be carrying a gun with wad cutter bullets. Nobody who wants to shoot anything other than paper has a reason to use a wad cutter bullet. So you could take this two ways. The first way would be that that's unique. Like people don't usually get wad cutter bullets. So the fact that Bill was found with wad cutter bullets, uh oh, a lot of people don't buy them. So doesn't that make it more likely that it was Melanie's gun? Or you could Wait, take why it. Why would that make it more likely to be Melanie's gun? Uh, Stephen Batzer was saying that wad cutter is not normally what people buy. So, so why would she buy it? Because she didn't know any better, you mean? It, it, I asked Melanie, why'd you get wad cutter bullets? And she said, well, the owner pretty much just told me to get wad cutter. Oh, I didn't she know. did get, she, it was confirmed that she had wad cutter bullets. Yes. So she said she got the wad cutter bullets. So that doesn't look yeah. so great for her. Because not a lot of people would. But Batzer also said there, Stephen's also saying that uh, revolvers, all revolvers, are using wad cutter bullets. So is it that if a revolver of some type, but not her gun was used and wad cutter bullets were used, is it? Yeah. We gave him our, you know, we gave him documentation, transcripts, reports, everything we can get our hands on from the trial. And we asked him for his assessment. Mm -hmm. What do you think at the end of the day? Was it her gun? What's your final opinion? And here it is. When you look at things forensically, your number one job is to exclude possibilities. It's not to say, you know, A and B link up. Saying it's consistent with is saying that it's to an average person suggests that it's evidence of. And when a field study shows that uh, for the Taurus revolvers of the model which she purchased, it is evidence against. So that is misleading uh, what the prosecutors were saying. If they were saying, oh, this is, you know, consistent with what she had. Uh, well, there's there's no direct evidence of that other than what is in a database. And what they said may have been correct, but their evidence that it was correct is really pretty thin. If I were called, I would say that the best evidence that we have is that it is unlikely that her pistol was used in this crime, but it's not impossible based upon the number of lands and grooves that were found on the subject bullet and the number of lands and grooves found in the Taurus revolvers sold in the area. Without the gun to compare against the bullets, you can't say it's impossible. There are lots of other pistols which use that type of rifling, countless other guns that have that configuration. And there you have it from the expert. And I want to point out, he's not being paid. Not at all. He has no vested interest in this. But when someone testifies for the prosecution, are they being paid? It depends on who's testifying. Usually, are they public I servants would... or are they... No, if they have a ballistics expert, they're going to be paid. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not saying anyone would lie, but when someone is incentivized, right, it changes how much you can weigh their testimony, I think. It certainly does. The experts go back and forth, but this is our independent expert and the best we could find on the gun, yeah. which will come up again during appeal. Next time on Direct Appeal... The state presents evidence of a forged prescription for a powerful sedative, chloral hydrate. But who actually forged this prescription? Was it Melanie or someone else?
Direct Appeal is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. The story arc was written by Megan Sachs. Music and underscore by Dessert Media. Recorded, mixed, and edited by Justin Kral at JC Studios. Special thanks to Alan Tuckerman, whose work was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing tips at directappealpodcast.com.